Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It certainly is great to be back on the air with you guys. I feel as though it's been an eternity since I was on the air last. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's probably been about a week since the last time I was on the air with you guys. Um, I wasn't out of town. Uh, in other words, I wasn't on assignment, but I have had a lot of things uh, come up lately that obviously needed to take uh, precedent over uh, podcasting. But that didn't mean at the same time that I was also preparing for when I would be on the air again next. So um, so on one hand, yes, I um, certainly had missed being with you guys on the air for quite a while. But at the same time, at least I did have the uh, proper amount of time to prepare for what um, lies in store. As we are now going to be um, in the final episode uh, segment to a signal victory, uh, the Lake Erie campaign, 1812-1813. We are now into the uh, second part of uh, what is called denouement, which um, ties into the uh, epilogue uh, for this um, podcast uh, book topic series discussion that we've been doing for quite a while. But it certainly has well been uh, worth the while And I must also say that no matter where all of you um, live, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world, I want to say thank you, not only just for being such ardent listeners, but the results that have uh, come in over this past week have been phenomenal. Um, I'm not going to flaunt, I'm not going to brag, but the results, um, you know, any time or any time of day where I can get, you know, results, whether it's 20 plays or say 40, uh, regardless of the number, it's great. I didn't expect uh, to hit um, a record high one day of like having, say, around 340-some plays in one day alone. Uh, To me, that's remarkable, and it also goes to show that all of you out there are eager to learn just about everything there is to learn that you didn't know before, uh, regardless of a book topic series uh, discussion that I have... um, been doing uh, since on the air uh, for the first time back in uh, June of 2020. So uh, continue the good work and continue to get the word out to those whom would like to um, learn as much as there is about history as possible. Uh, I did have to be reminded, unfortunately, that um, in the United States, and I'm not trying to sound negative, I'm not trying to get political, but I did read a staggering statistic that only about Oh, I'd say 15% of all um, high schoolers were proficient in uh, U.S. history. So I would hope that for all of you um, older aged uh, people or uh, parents to uh, be able to get your uh, children and grandchildren into um, history and get them to understand uh, the importance of um, of learning about um not just world history, but about uh, American history, because it is—it's essential that we that we know our history, even if there are times when it's not been um, on the right side. But regardless, we do need to know as much uh, as much of our um, history as there is possible, so that generations afterwards can um, not only appreciate the history, but be able to um, learn what they can and be able to. Um, be able to retain the necessary knowledge and be able to um, to carry it uh, with them in uh, various other uh, settings, whether it's visiting a historical attraction or um, 
watching uh, documentaries through YouTube or on the History Channel. Uh, the bottom line is that uh, we've got to uh, constantly do whatever it takes to um, to be able um, to demonstrate uh, good knowledge of uh, history, uh, regardless of when an event took place or whenever a person of historical significance lived. Uh, we have to uh, be constantly going one step forward versus uh, one step backwards. So I'm sure some many of you are wondering what else is there that um, was not able to be discussed from the previous um, segment to a signal victory, uh, given that we are in uh, part two of denouement, uh, the final um, episode, a.k.a. now being our epilogue in this series. Well, we are going to learn in this um, episode about life going forward after the Lake Erie battle um, for soldiers whom were of uh, non-rank status. We will also learn about um, the hazards of working on and off a ship in um, brutal uh, weather conditions. After all, you know, um, seasons do have um, their uh, advantages and disadvantages, but when seasons do change, that can also uh, lead to more, um, or I should say lead to a greater likelihood of something going wrong, not, not just for one soldier, but perhaps for a handful of soldiers. Uh, we will also learn um, if the for those who survived, whether or not the, um, the battle legacy with them um, stayed with them for the remainder of their lives. And we will also um, find out if there were any setbacks uh, that followed um, as a result of uh, General William Henry Harrison's victory at the Thames. Uh, we will also... Um, not trying to give everything away, but just give you all a good um, breakdown of what we will be discussing. We'll also find out uh, what became of, um, say, British Naval Officer Lieutenant Harriet Barclay following the battle at Lake Erie, as well as for um, American um, officers from uh, Oliver Hazard Perry to uh, Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott. So it's time to get this uh, show on the road and be uh, prepared for our uh, first uh, leadoff question. So here we go. Was life going forward after uh, after the Lake Erie battle smooth for those uh, soldiers whom were of non-rank status? Is it fair to say that life going forward after uh, the Lake Erie battle was smooth for those soldiers whom were of non-rank status? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, for starters, in the lead-up, to the actual battle, all non-ranked personnel, being that of the common sailors and marines, had dealt with unpleasantries from lacking good quality food, unsafe living conditions, loneliness. But many of these men chose to avoid handling their situations after battle's end by instead going the route of desertion. And in other words, we're not automatically defecting over to the side of the British, but by means of desertion, we are um, quitting altogether. We just don't want to uh, be committed. We've already served our time. Why serve any longer knowing that there's no real definitive timeline as to when this war will even end? You know, we do forget um, about various unpleasantries like lacking uh good quality food you know there's no such things as refrigerators yes there might there are ways to preserve food uh, but then again even the ships themselves are not equipped with smoke houses where um, 
you know, pork, uh, pork related foods like ham can be salted down and, you know, placed into tubs for a, a period of time and then taken out to change out the water. We don't have that kind of stuff uh, on these um, wooden ships. The food that you get is going to be simple. Um, if you're the uh, common sailor, you would probably be, be getting like salted pork or uh, chipped beef. Um, you're going to get the basic 101, a uh, hard tack. Uh, so you're not having, uh, you might have um, some form of um, upper level food or, or, or something that would be a step above the uh, hard tack or um, salted pork. But, but it's not a guarantee. But the bottom line is is that for the common sailor and uh, marine, he is not going to be getting three meals a day. He'll be lucky at best if he gets two, but not three, I can assure you that. Uh, whereas um, sailors would enlist for one to two years, Marines got recruited, folks, for a five-year tour of duty. Back then, a five-year tour of duty uh, was a big commitment just like it would be today but we should probably also keep in mind that um, life expectancy was not it, it's not so much that it was life expectancy but who's to say that you would be alive to still complete your overall five-year tour of duty after uh, the Lake Erie battle historians do know that roughly 35 militiamen volunteers from the Pennsylvania 147th militia regiment went about deserting only with four and a half years left. So in other words, you know, it's one thing to volunteer, but once you have agreed to volunteer, folks, you can't get out of the contract. You're stuck in the contract for five years. You just can't come and go as you please on your own terms. So it might be fair to say that, while well, yes, these militiamen were willing to um, fight the cause at Lake Erie, they really um, didn't have their minds set on what lied in store long term. Some of us could one. Some of us could say, "Well, isn't that um, the officer's fault or the government's fault for not uh, educating these um, fellows a little bit better about what it meant to uh, serve long term?" Sure, we could say that, but that is also a whole other um, series topic discussion for another time. The bottom line is that even um, during this time, you know, yes, America's military is um, is needing an overhaul because, as I've said before, and I'd say it again, you know, here we were convinced that militias could help um, resolve all conflicts. But in the aftermath of this war, we will realize that while, yes, militias can still play a role, militias can't solve everything even if it means going to war against the mightiest empire in the world, being that of England. Well, how about uh, bickering, a.k.a. arguing, to fighting, was seen as a prevalent norm against all military personnel, regardless of rank status. So even the officers can engage in acts of bickering, or what we call arguing, to even fighting. Gosh, to think an officer of high rank status fighting with another officer... What kind of a uh, role model, what kind of uh, role models, what kind of good role model examples are being set right there? For me, that's not good, but it just goes to show you that no one's immune from not only from the conflict, but no one's immune from uh, the bickering, uh, the fighting, 
I mean, nobody's immune from it. Uh, a good example happened in terms of uh, bickering and fighting happened on October 28, 1813, uh, three weeks after the American victory at the Battle of the Thames. Alexander Metlin, who was a soldier from the 147th Pennsylvania Regiment, he got into an altercation or a fight with another crewman, only in the end to be thrown overboard where he drowned in Lake Erie's waters. To me, that's very uh, sad. Well, for one, it's sad to think that we have crewmen who whom can't get along with one another, and they're probably bickering and argue, arguing over petty things, petty things that have been taken out of context and made into something bigger uh, in which they should not have been. But we also have to sadly keep in mind that not everyone knows how to swim. I do remember mentioning to you all from a previous podcast that right around the time that this uh, that the Battle of Lake Erie began, many crewmen were not excellent swimmers. Many of them had probably not even learned how to swim, so the biggest fear for them was that, okay, if the ship is virtually uh, crushed, uh, broken down to where it's no longer salvageable, and the ship is on fire, we're going to be forced to jump into the water. You know, we don't have a Coast Guard. I mean, we don't have a, how do I say it? We don't have any such things as Coast Guard helicopters to come rescue us. So once we're in the water, we're on our own. It's every man for himself. So, yes, it's a, a real travesty to think that um, Alexander Metlin uh, from the 147th Pennsylvania Regiment um, was thrown overboard all in the name of a fight. Probably, you know, something he had, he didn't start, but for all we know, he could have been antagonized and had all he could take and wanted to take matters into his hands, but sadly uh, lost his life doing so. I mentioned something earlier about how the seasons uh, can have um, surprises or twists and turns, I should say. As fall turned to winter, hazards of working on and off a ship in frigid weather, along with traveling across ice to and from shore, had consequences. We go to March 4th of 1814. Seaman Hector Holcomb of of the uh, USS Niagara, he died, folks, by drowning as a result of falling through the ice while returning to to the vessel after coming back from uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. You know, folks, um, it's one thing to walk on ice. And just because the ice is thick, it doesn't mean that, it doesn't guarantee you that you're safe. Sometimes even the thickest of ice can throw curveballs at, uh, at individuals. If, if the conditions are right, say the winds are howling, they're howling so hard that their effects can be felt on, um, on a frozen pond to where um, ice itself can break, only for you to fall through. And we should be reminded that if you fall through ice, it's like thousands of knives stabbing at you right away. And... You know, you only have maybe at best five, ten minutes to stay afloat before you could succumb to um, to uh, death by drowning. Um, but sadly for uh, Seaman Hector, Hector Holcomb, he uh, fell through the ice and never came back up. The winter of 1813-1814 saw Dr. Usher Parsons compile mass, a mass journal log ranging from uh, witnessing amputations, watching soldiers, folks, dueling it out with one another, 
I used to think dueling at this time was just reserved for the politicians. But I was uh, reminded that, you know, dueling is not just for um, one profession. Oftentimes, uh, men engaged in duels as a means of um, resolving a conflict. Most um, men in the early years of the uh, Republic, in terms of politicians, didn't think it was necessary to sit down and resolve their differences like, you know, normal grown-ups. Many of them felt it was just best to um, meet one another at a specific uh, site and um, see whom could um, outshoot the other in a matter of uh, seconds. What I do know about dueling is that even if you showed up but unloaded the um, bullets out of your uh, pistol and the bullets touched the ground, what it simply meant was that today you were not ready to um, engage in um in the actions um that were um that you were uh, that you had originally intended to do but you still but however you weren't frowned upon and the reason why you weren't frowned upon is that is because you at least showed up but if you didn't show up then you truly were frowned upon for being a coward or a wimp so basically uh dueling folks is not cow a game of cowboys and indians or cops and robbers uh, dueling was all about testing a man's um, livelihood, uh, his bravery. In other words, dueling was seen as something that separated uh, boys from um, manhood status, if that's um, how you want to uh, go about approaching it. Uh, Dr. Usher Parsons also was uh, supervising uh, wound dressings. He was attending funerals. He was also recording and I should say observing soldiers' deaths. He saw it all. There wasn't a dull moment, but sadly, what he saw was real-life uh, horror, real-life trauma. Think about it, folks. There's no such things as uh, counseling centers to treat what we would now know in today's, time, today's times as post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, for those whom survived the Battle of Lake Erie, did they carry the battle legacy with them for the remainder of their lives? Yes, men on both sides carried the legacy behind the battle itself and the outcome. Uh, many uh, USS Lawrence veterans, such as Seaman William Thompson to George Varnum, were left with only a portion of their leg after amputation procedures had been performed. I'm not trying to gross you guys out, but we do need to be reminded that not everyone came home safe. Those whom survived were left with scars. Even if you did not lose a limb, you still had scars, emotional scars. But even for those whom lost a limb, not only are they dealing with the physical scars, but the mental, or I should say emotional scars as well. So I can't imagine returning home with only a portion of, of your leg still intact after amputation procedures had been performed. USS uh, Trip crewman Private William Brady went about limping home with a smashed knee. Patrick Fitzpatrick of the USS Trip and Private Harvey Harrington of USS Tigress both endured permanent deafness for the rest of their lives. So it's not just physical injuries to your uh, knees, legs. We're also talking about our ears, folks. Think about um, 
the think about the loud sounds of the cannons being fired. Think about the work if you're um, working on the ship. Think about all that pounding that goes into place. There are no such things as um, earplugs back then. So when you're dealing with loud sounds up close, you know it's a risk you, they were willing to take. But it, but knowing what we know in today's time, the um, the impl implications that followed afterwards were permanent. Uh, British veterans to the uh, Battle of Lake Erie faced similar hardships. Uh, how about Private Robert Kelly or Robert Kiley of HMS General Hunter? He lived the rest of his life without a left arm. Think about it, folks. No such things as prosthetic devices. I think it's fair to say that many of these um, individuals, if they were alive today, would give anything in the world to have a prosthetic uh, leg, a prosthetic arm, prosthetic hand. They would give anything in the world to have um, to have um, all the kind of uh, prosthetic uh, robotic uh, devices that are in place now to that um, have helped so many uh, modern day wounded uh, warrior veterans still be able to live um, a more modified life. So uh, then we have uh, Sergeant Richard Forrestall. He lived, or I should say survived, with a gunshot wound from the right arm, but yet received pension from his injury. Uh, the majority of the Canadian Provincial Marine veterans got land as a gift for their services. There's nothing wrong with getting land for your services, but, you know, unfortunately not everybody was able to get land, but I guess that's better than nothing. Did any setbacks evolve uh, following Harrison's uh, victory at the Thames, or I should say General William Henry Harrison's victory at the Thames? Um, yes, there was um, one particular setback. Given that General Harrison's forces prevailed at the Thames come early October, which happened on October 5th of 1813, so that means that this coming uh, Thursday, folks, next Thursday, October 5th, will mark 210 years uh, since that infamous battle that basically broke the backbone of uh, Tecumseh's Confederacy. So yes, given that General Harrison's forces prevailed at the Thames come early October, it was still considered late in the season for both uh, General William Henry Harrison and Commodore Oliver Perry to assist Commodore Isaac Chauncey and General Henry Dearborn along Lake Ontario for an assault on the British post in Kingston, Ontario. Perry's Lake Erie victory did remove the British presence altogether on Lake Erie, but yet it did little to alter the war's outcome. But it is fair to say that the victory on Lake Erie was a huge step in the right direction, um, given that the War of 1812 itself did end in December of 1814. However, um, Little did uh, General Andrew Jackson know that by the time uh, January 1815 arrived, little did he know that a treaty had already taken place 3,000 miles across the ocean in uh, Ghent, Belgium, what would be the Treaty of Ghent, ending the war. Of course, in January of 1815, um, Jackson's forces annihilated the British at uh, New Orleans, which really, in a sense, was the last major battle uh, to the War of 1812. 
So while, yes, Perry's Lake Erie victory did remove the British presence altogether, and yes, it may not have completely, or I should say, it may not have drastically altered the war's outcome, but the victory alone did set um, the right um, tone uh, in terms of um, significant uh, progress uh, from the American side. What we do know is that had Perry lost at Lake Erie, there would have been a greater likelihood that present-day Michigan, including Wisconsin folks, would have been incorporated into Upper Canada. I can only imagine what the, what the United States would have looked like nowadays if Michigan and Canada, or Michigan and Wisconsin, I should say, had been, um, if the British had prevailed at Lake Erie and now the Michigan Territory is no longer no longer is in the hands of the United States, and in Wisconsin as well. Luckily, that didn't happen, but there again, you still have to wonder, what if it did? Uh, is it fair to say that Lieutenant Barclay's British fleet surrendering at Lake Erie became the last straw which ultimately broke the backbone of Tecumseh's Confederacy? Uh, yes, for starters, uh, previous defeats, or I should say setbacks, at Forts Meigs and Stevenson helped begin paving the way for Indian desertions from within the Detroit River region, but Perry's Lake Erie victory greatly hindered Britain's Indian allies' faith in regards to promises once secure but now are no longer certain. And I'll mention that uh, here shortly. But... Um, even though, yes, uh, the American victory at um, the Battle of Lake Erie at um, Putten Bay, South Bass Island, while, yes, that may have been the victory that um, broke the backbone of Tecumseh's Confederacy, it just so happens that Tecumseh's brother, being Tenskwatawa, along with Potawatomi Indian leader Maine Pock, did make one last ditch effort in attempting to rally uh, the Indians within uh, Michigan's lower peninsula. They tried that, but it failed. Although uh, British Indian agent Robert Dixon secured all tribes of present-day Wisconsin, including Michigan's upper peninsula, it simply, wouldn't, it simply wasn't enough long-term to provide uh, permanent assurances for those Indian nations whom previously had been promised a buffer zone region. The buffer zone region, folks, was a protective barrier. And what would that what would that have included, folks? You know, it's not just a protective barrier for your own well-being, but had this protective barrier, aka uh, buffer zone, put in been put into place, um, and had the British prevailed, that would have meant that uh, Indians on the Northwest Territory, most notably of Michigan and Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and what was left of them in Ohio, in terms of Northwest Ohio, would have all been assured uh, protection from further um, outside um, uh, development, or I should say further outside encroachment, being the American settlers going westward into the Northwest Territory. You know, we've already got Ohio established as a state, but for the Indians, their biggest concern and fear was 
that if um, that if the Americans do prevail in the, in the Northwest, that means that our that the likelihood of our uh, ancestral territories, while yes, the British can promise us left and right what they would do, but but who's to say that what if something falls through the cracks? And ultimately, it did, folks. Um, the Indians no longer, um, when the British lost in the War of 1812, the Indians once again felt betrayed. In other words, the British were no longer able to live up to their promises in, in um, create, creating this um, wonderful buffer zone that would have uh, protected their um, allies from further uh, westward uh, encroachment amongst those uh, from the east uh, being uh, the American settlers going further west past the uh, Appalachian Mountains. Although uh, Britain's presence on Lake Erie was sealed following their defeat against Perry's flotilla, what became of Lakes Huron, Michigan, and Superior? Well, for starters, the Americans weren't able to fully 100% secure Huron, Michigan, and Superior before War of 1812 officially ended, but the United States did re-secure Detroit, including an assurance that for those Americans residing in the southern Michigan Territory, as well as the Indiana Territory, including the state of Ohio, that those um, Americans living in the Northwest per the territories and state of Ohio that I mentioned a moment ago, they were all um, relieved or assured from, from not having to worry about any um, further um, Indian confrontations. So think about it, folks. Southern Michigan, we think of uh, what is now present-day Monroe, Michigan, back then called Frenchtown along the River Raisin. Uh, when, 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 all, when I also think of... Uh, Southern Michigan, you know, think of Detroit being, of course, southeast Michigan to the north of Monroe. But um, for those living in Detroit, they are now um, they are now liberated. Nothing wrong with being liberated, to say the least. Uh, what became of British naval officer Lieutenant Robert Harriet Barclay following uh, the Lake Erie uh, battle defeat? Well, for starters, he was court-martialed, given, however, that it was a traditional procedure following defeat or loss of any vessel. But um, Robert Barclay, though, folks, he came to uh, court in a terrible state. One leg and an arm being the only one intact, covered with bandages. So think about it, folks. Robert Barclay, who was the lead commander for the British fleet, has lost an arm, and he has lost a leg. I don't know if he lost the full leg entirely, but from but from what it sounds like, he obviously um, he did endure some very very um, traumatic um, wounds. It's a miracle that he survived. I mean, regardless of what side you're on, and to survive. Um, this kind of a confrontation on the water with uh, not just so much cannonballs being launched, but the projectiles that come afterwards. You know, you don't get to um, run at your own pleasure. You are constantly on the lookout. And no matter how hard you try to see what's in front of you or at an angle, you're not guaranteed that you'll make it out alive. But I can't imagine being in uh, Robert uh, Barclay's shoes and 
you know, you, you, you have just one leg and an arm that is intact, but yet it's covered with bandages left and right. Well, there is some good news for Robert Barclay, even though, yes, he was court-martialed. The court did exonerate him of any wrongdoings or faults. November of 1813, two months after uh, his entire fleet uh, surrendered uh, to Oliver Perry's um, squadron, Robert Barclay earned the promotion of commander. Two years after uh, the Battle of Lake Erie, uh, Robert Barclay, believe it or not, folks, he married his first cousin, Agnes Cossaire. They went on to have a family, and in November of 1815, he was given a yearly pension of 200 pounds. Seems like a lot of money. I don't know what that would be the equivalent to in today's uh, modern-day um, money amount, but to get a yearly pension of 200 pounds a year um, in his time, better than nothing, but still, I'm sure it was a, a good reasonable sum. Uh, the year 1822 saw him receive a command of what's called a bomb vessel, being that of a wooden sailing naval ship through the uh, Admiralty. Uh, the years of 1824 to 1837, um, Robert Barclay had no other further services. And on April 18th of, on April, um, 8th of 1837, Robert Barclay, folks, died at the age of 50 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Well, you know, in today's time, um, if, you, if you live to age 50, that's, that's not really old. It's still rather young, but for Robert Barclay to have lived to have been 50 back in 1837, I, I think it'd be fair to say that that was uh, considered old age for that day and time. Uh, what monumental event took place on January 6, 1814? Jesse Elliott and Oliver Perry, or I should say Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott and Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry, were both honored with a Congressional Gold Medal. The Congressional Gold Medal is the highest civilian award in the United States, along with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Both men also received formal resolutions from Congress, better known as Thanks of Congress, in recognition for their militaristic achievements, most notably defeating the British at Lake Erie, which marked an unusual first. And what was that unusual first? How about the entire British naval fleet surrendering? And on top of the medals they earned, both men each got an equal amount of prize, being $7,140 apiece for capturing an entire enemy fleet. $7,140, back then that was a lot of money. And I'm sure some of us are wondering, what would they have used that money for? Would they have used that money for their own personal use, or would they have been using it for, um, for uh, say, further military expenditures? Well, we could say yes to both, but the bottom line is, is I think it'd be fair to say that both men would not have uh, spent the money like there was no tomorrow. Congress went about providing Oliver Perry an extra sum of $5,000, but not for Jesse Duncan Elliott, which soon led to both men having a, fall, having a fallout with one another. It wasn't just so much about who got $5,000 over the other, but... Um, 
as we learned from the previous uh, podcast segment episode, that Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott um, made a um, he made a choice that um, he didn't um, flat out disobey an order. But what he should have done was, as soon as he saw that his ship was in, uh, as soon as he saw his um, fellow uh, comrades' ship, and being that of Oliver Perry's flagship, the USS Lawrence, in trouble, Jesse Duncan Elliott should have uh, taken matters into his own hands by, by going out of um, the the um, line chain and um, going forward and engaging HMS uh, Queen Charlotte which would have uh, probably prevented uh, further damage to uh, USS Lawrence. And for all we know, it might have been possible that USS Lawrence would have remained intact the remainder of the uh, fight. But although it was true that, yes, Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott didn't go about engaging HMS Queen Charlotte uh, right away, thus preventing further damage to USS Lawrence, did Oliver Perry ever bring up a list of charges against Lieutenant Elliot? Believe it or not, folks, he did. But the list of charges weren't drawn up until August 1818, nearly five years after the battle took place. Why so long? I'm not sure, but that's just how it was. However, uh, Navy Secretary Benjamin uh, Crowninshield advised Oliver Perry himself not to go forward with filing charges at Elliott. Navy Secretary Crowninshield and President James Monroe opposed the idea of America's two most decorated heroes go about confronting one another in a court of law. This uh, fear or um, high level of concern also had to do with the Navy's image short and long term. And I think it might be fair to say that James Monroe and Navy Secretary Benjamin Crowninshield wanted to avoid anything scandalous. We must keep in mind that James Monroe's presidency uh, from 1817 to 1825 was marked as an era of good feelings. You know, um, think about it, folks, we're uh, two years into the post-war of 1812 uh, era by the time James Monroe beco officially becomes president in March of 1817. Um, construction officially begins on the Erie Canal in uh, Utica, New York, uh, just on the outskirts of Syracuse, I should say, uh, east of Syracuse. But uh, that, that year of 1817, um, the first uh, cornerstone uh, to the um, Erie Canal project in New York State began in that year, and um, by the time James Monroe's, uh, just before James Monroe's uh, presidency, how do I say it? It was at, right after James Monroe's presidency ended. It was in late 1825, I want to say around September or October 1825, that the Erie Canal was officially opened for business. Um, the, the whole 363-mile course of the Erie Canal, starting in uh, the Hudson River in New York City all the way to uh, Buffalo, New York, officially um, began. Now, prior to its um, full completion, it was open, but only open in uh, different open in, uh, segments, to say the least. The last part of the canal uh, that was completed was around uh, Lockport in uh, Buffalo, 
Uh, for those of you who are new to my podcasts, uh, I did a series called The Wedding of the Waters, uh, The Erie Canal and the Making of a Great Nation. Uh, for those of you who have not had a chance to listen to that uh, podcast series, I strongly recommend that you do it. You will get a, a true uh, fundamental appreciation not only for the um, significance behind the Erie Canal itself, but really uh, the significance behind um, what canals um, themselves uh, did for uh, for uh, the young American Republic in its early years in getting goods to and from places point A to point B, as well as uh, uh, as well as um, people, especially um, given that Buffalo was the westernmost terminus of the Erie Canal, um, when it ended there, um, it, not just immigrants but uh, people uh, from the eastern uh, from the eastern seaboard were going west, and they were going west into Ohio. Uh, they would be um, establishing um, towns um, on Lake Erie and cities like Cleveland, Sandusky. Um, Marblehead, uh, eventually uh, what we know as Toledo, just to give you examples of cities that um, eventually uh, got themselves established, thanks in large part because of the Erie Canal. So not to get off track or anything, but, you know, here America has just won her second war for independence. And, you know, people, people want to feel a little bit better, though. They want to be assured that we may not have to fight another war with England, but we want to be able to get back on the right track. And and so, therefore, folks, uh, James Monroe's uh, presidency is has often been considered the era of good feelings. Uh, following the end to the War of 1812, did Jesse Duncan Elliott still serve in the Navy? Yes, he did. Uh, he went about commanding uh, the sloop, USS uh, Ontario during the Second Barbary, a.k.a. Algerian War, in 1815. He got promoted to uh, captain in 1818, where he uh, served on a naval commission, which went about selecting sites for navy yards, lighthouses, and various other coastal fortifications until 1822, uh, from 1829 to 1832, he commanded the West Indies fleet. I think it's uh, very um, unique that he served on the Naval Commission that went about selecting sites for Navy yards and most notably for where lighthouses would be built. People do forget that when George Washington was president, um, I want to say one of the first uh, 10 pieces of legislation one of those first 10 pieces of legislation had to do with um, lighthouse uh, projects. And lighthouses, folks, yes, while they might, well, yes, they might be a great tourist destination spot in terms of going to the top, we have to keep in mind that lighthouses were essential in guiding vessels in and out of the harbors and ensuring that they did not get too close to shallower waters to where if they did, they would run aground and you know, the hole, the holes would flatten out, and not only do you have a damaged ship that can no longer be salvageable, but you've got cargo that cannot be uh, replaced. So, uh, the establishment of building um, lighthouses, folks, was definitely something of um, national of uh, strong national security importance. For uh, Jesse Duncan Elliott, he was named commander of the Boston Navy Yard in 1833, and from March of 1835 to August of 1838, 
He commanded USS Constitution, a.k.a. Old Ironsides, in the Mediterranean fleet. But over in the Mediterranean, he got charged with minor offenses amongst the junior officers, including using uh, his rank status for personal gain purposes. He was found guilty in 1838, and he was suspended for four years. On December the 10th of 1845, he died at age 63, and he's buried in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It is fair to say, though, that um, Jesse Duncan Elliott never um, escaped the wrath for a decision that he probably wished he could have done over. But people um, never let him uh, forget the fact that he um, remained idle for about two hours watching the Lawrence take a beating. And yes, should Jesse Duncan Elliott have gone a little bit sooner? Yes. But of course, for Elliott, his defense was, you know, that Perry was so caught up in what was going on aboard his ship that nobody ever told me to, uh, to take the, the next um, surprise move and back him up. Well, we do have to keep in mind that sometimes we can't always rely on officers above to tell us what we should or shouldn't be doing. Sometimes we have to take matters into our own hands and go and assist someone right away without being told. And by doing so, it modifies the situation and it will also uh, perhaps prevent um, reprimands not only from the superior commanding officer, but from those from other officers of high rank status from within the inner circle. After September 10th, 1813, did Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry see further action before the War of 1812 ended with the December 1814 Treaty of Ghent? Yes, in May of 1814, Oliver Hazard Perry took command of a fleet comprised of seven gunboats stationed in Newport, Rhode Island. He did participate in the defenses around Baltimore and Washington, D.C. during the British invasion of Chesapeake Bay. Perry's involvement in the Chesapeake campaign would mark the final time that he saw combat as a career naval officer. We forward uh, five years later in 1819, uh, Navy Secretary Smith Thompson sent Oliver Perry southward to South America in exchange for dropping all charges against Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott. The mission to uh, South America was uh, one that aimed to resolve outstanding piracy issues, which did result in a treaty signing on August 11, 1819. So, of course, James Monroe is you know, still president. This is still his uh, first term. Shortly after the treaty signing took place, shortly after the treaty signing, I should say, Perry and many of his crew came down with um, what's called yellow fever. Sadly, folks, 12 days after the, the treaty, on August the 23rd of 1819, Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry died on board uh, vessel USS Nonsuch. Sadly, folks, Oliver Hazard Perry was only 34 years old, and he died on his birthday. Folks, his, I mean, he, he was already married with a family, but they weren't there to say that they were not able to be there to say their final goodbyes to him. You know, even in today's time, sometimes there are, of course, there are a lot of things that we don't have control over, 
you know, such as losing a loved one unexpectedly. So we should be reminded that even in today's modern world, and yes, we may have uh, telephones, or I should say cell phones. Yes, we may have email. Back then, they didn't have that kind of stuff. So for all um, Oliver, for all we know, it probably took a month or two for Mrs. Perry to learn of her husband's death. So it wasn't like she could get a breaking news alert app right away saying, Mrs. Perry, this is uh, so-and-so from the uh, Navy. Uh, we have some terrible news to tell you and your family about your husband. So, so I mean, yes, obviously when she got the news, it was heartbreaking, but we just have to keep in mind that um, that even in today's world, even with all the advanced, sophisticated technology there is, there are still circumstance. There are still a lot of um, unfortunate circumstances that do happen that are sadly beyond our control. But yes, to have uh, died at age 34, uh, one would only have to wonder how much. You know, one would have to wonder just uh, how much more could Oliver Hazard Perry have still accomplished? I mean, he he accomplished a lot, but we're still left to wonder how much more would he have accomplished had he not died so young so um he perry was originally buried in the port of uh, spain but in the year 1826 which also happened to be the same year that uh, thomas jefferson and john adams both died on uh, july 4th uh, america's 50th um, birthday celebration of uh, adams and jefferson died hours apart Jefferson died on the morning of July 4th, 1826. Uh, John Adams died in the afternoon. Of course, Thomas Jefferson's word, they believe his last words were, um, is it the 4th? In other words, did I live long enough to see July 4th come around? For John Adams, many historians believe his last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. In other words, Thomas Jefferson's ideals for um, for freedom, given that he is you know considered the architect of American freedom, still resonate in the minds of um, Americans, not only in the present moment that John Adams was alive, but going forward in future generations. So in 1826, Oliver Hazard Perry's remains were brought back to the United States where they got interred at Newport, Rhode Island. You know, there are many monuments of Oliver Perry, but the one that stands out the most to me is the National Monument of him located at Putten Bay, Ohio. Well, not not a National Monument. There, mon there is a statue of him inside the um, battle, inside the uh, museum, or uh, the uh, Perry Victory Center. Uh, there is a museum, um, a ground-level uh, uh, ground floor museum, of the uh, Battle of Lake Erie, but I know this um, national monument uh, located at Putten Bay, Ohio, on South Bass Island very well because, you know, my wife and I were in Ohio this summer, and we saw um, the um, national monument up close, and we also um, took an elevator all the way to the top um, top level where we could overlook uh, the village of Putten Bay and Lake Erie. The uh, Perry Monument, or the uh, the the International uh, Victory uh, Monument, 
just so happens to be the world's largest Doric column structure at 352 feet tall. And to think my wife and I made it all the way to the top, that was special. I'm also thankful we went the week when we did because if we had gone the week before at the very end of June, we would never have been able to have gone to the top. Um, there were still um, the remnants of those uh, unfortunate um, wildfires in Canada um, made their way uh, into uh, the south, into, um, they went uh, south into uh, the United States. And uh, from what we were told when we were there, that uh, being the week before, they actually had to close the Perry Victory uh, Memorial for a day or two because of the thick uh, haze. So luckily, we were fortunate enough we did not have that um, and that we were able to go to the top. So this um, National Monument, folks, was built between uh, 1912 and 1915. But besides this National Monument and other uh, monuments of Perry out there, Perry's victory on Lake Erie helped spur the young republic by becoming a competitive naval force that was respected amongst other world powers. The victory also helped soon, it didn't happen overnight, but it did help over time enable the establishment of the longest non-fortified border in the world, that of the United States and Canada, folks. You know, yes, we may have cross-border cross um, stations. Yes, we might have international bridges, but we don't have um, we don't have fortified borders like many countries in the world do, given that they are at conflict with one another. That's not the case with the United States and Canada. Uh, when my wife and I spent a day in Canada this over the summer, um, we were in Amherstburg. Uh, taking a walk around along the King's Navy Yard, we saw a monument called um, Forged in Peace. Two nations coming together and becoming allies. No longer enemies, but allies. In the aftermath of the War of 1812, the United States and Canada went about forging a uh, peaceful relationship that has still existed to this day. Well, we've uh, covered um, all the necessary ground that there is in uh, ending this uh, book topic uh, podcast series discussion. It has been a great journey. It has been a journey well worth um, investing in because it's more than just a battle. It's also about understanding what led to the battle. It's also understanding about where, how both sides uh, went forward after the battle, about how people's lives weren't necessarily the same. It's also about, you know, learning that officers whom, engage, whom were engaged in this battle, while, yes, some lived a little bit longer than others, not everyone lived as long as they would have intended. As, you know, for Oliver Perry, yes, he, you know, he didn't lose a limb or any body part for that matter, but still, I can only imagine what scars he would have um endured following the aftermath of this battle and as i said earlier uh, one can only imagine how much longer perry himself might have lived had he not died so young he had so much more left to give to his country but yet he gave so much for his, he gave so much for out of 
He gave so much for his country when it mattered most. And because of that, we owe him a huge debt of gratitude. Whenever you hear of places like Perrysburg, Ohio, think of Oliver Perry. Hey, my wife and I stayed there this summer when we were vacationing in Ohio, right on the outskirts of Toledo. Um, so whenever you um, think of Oliver Perry, you think of uh, the Battle of Lake Erie. Um, think of don't, don't give up the ship. We have met the enemy, and they are ours. Well, I don't know where we'll be going next. Well, I take it back. Something tells me that I do know where we will be going next in our in our next upcoming uh, podcast book topic series discussion. But where, but where, regardless of where we go, it will be well worth the journey. But then again, all the journeys have well have been well worth the while. Well, thank you for being such ardent listeners, and wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe. And con- and thank you once again for for being um, such great listeners. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be. Uh, continue to get that word out because um, it's it's up to you guys, not only in the present, but to also ensure that future generations learn this stuff. This is stuff that can't be uh, forgotten. So uh, don't take history for granted. Let's learn from it. Let's learn from let's learn about historical things that you know say weren't pleasant, and make sure that they don't happen again going forward in the future. Thank you again, and wherever you all may live, uh, be safe and have a good upcoming weekend.